Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the purging of the top ranks of Ukraine's intelligence service, the SBU, and its prosecutor general by President Zelensky, citing more than 60 officials from the SBU and the prosecutor's office now working against the country in Russian-occupied territories. Joining us to assess how deep the Russians have penetrated Ukraine's intelligence service is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House advisor on Russia matters to Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Then, with a new CNN poll finding 75% of Americans see inflation as their top concern, with only 25% approving of Biden's efforts to curb it, we'll examine what the White House can do to prevent a wipeout of the Democrats in November and speak with Rob Johnson, the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He was formerly Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and of the United States Senate Budget Committee. Then finally, with Trump all but announcing he's running again, and with the GOP under his control, we will look into the likelihood that American plutocrats will support Trump, even though many might find him distasteful, just as German industrialists found Hitler distasteful, but useful in breaking labor unions and making them richer. Joining us is Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted, and we will discuss his article at Common Dreams, The GOP's Army of Christian Nationalists and White Supremacists, poses a danger greater than you know. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and was a White House advisor on Russia matters to Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Beebe. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, over the weekend, uh, President Vladimir Zelensky continued his purge of Ukraine's security services, the SBU, along with dismissing his, you know, I think, childhood friend, uh, the chief of the SBU, Ivan Bakanov. He's also now just fired the deputy director and also the prosecutor general. And on Sunday, Zelensky said that over 60 former SBU members and members of the prosecutor's office were now working against Ukraine in Russian-occupied areas. So is there a connection here? And apparently the head of Zelensky's uh, party in the parliament said that, I'll just quote, over the years, many residents of the Russian special services have secretly entrenched themselves within the walls of the SBU. Unfortunately, they got access to materials that they didn't have before. And the implication is that Russians' recent success in the Donbass, particularly in Luhansk, is being attributed to intelligence leaks. Does that uh, ring a bell with you, George? Well, yes and no. I think it is quite clear that the Russians have been uh, working on penetrating Ukrainian intelligence 
for as long as uh, Ukraine has existed as an independent state since the Soviet Union's breakup. This is uh, probably the most important country in the world from Russia's perspective. And it's one that they have longstanding involvement with, you know, dating back into the Tsarist period. So, you know, the Russians have made this an enormous intelligence priority. Uh, they know a lot of the people in the Ukrainian services. Um, you know, they know the language, they know the culture. Um, they have a lot of advantages in, in trying to penetrate uh, Ukrainian intelligence. So it's not very surprising that they've had some success. What doesn't ring true is that Russian success on the battlefield in the Donbass in this latest phase of the war is really attributable to uh, intelligence breakthroughs. I think the, the Russians have been grinding forward in a war of attrition that relies heavily on artillery bombardment. Uh, it's, it's not something that depends on uh, penetration of an opposing side's intelligence services. It depends on tactical battlefield intelligence, which is knowing where the targets are that you want to train your artillery sites on. But that's not the kind of thing that you, you steal through penetrating an intelligence service. So where does the symmetry or the asymmetry stand then, George, in terms of what we're told about the HIMARS system that the U.S. and NATO allies sent into uh, Ukraine along with U.S. artillery? And I think, I don't know whether the Germans finally have been shipping howitzers as well, but for the longest time we're told that it's about 10 to 1 ratio of Russian sh incoming shells vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainians firing back. So where does that stand? Well, I think the Russians do have some real numerical advantages when you compare uh, the relative uh, arsenals of artillery and, and missiles on each side. Um, the Russians can do this for a long time. They have a lot of ammunition and they have the ability to manufacture more ammunition. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, have burned through much of their Soviet-era uh, artillery and missile systems, particularly uh, the ammunition for them, they are relying on uh, the West to provide them with Western systems and ammunition. But there are some problems with that. One is the West can't provide them in sufficient quantities to match Russia's numerical advantages. Two, it takes a long time for them to be delivered for the Ukrainians to be trained on their use and to translate that into effectiveness on the battlefield. So even though the Western systems have greater accuracy and range, those qualitative advantages are not enough, at least not at this point, to offset the Russians' quantitative advantages. And plus, the systems that we're providing are a mix of things. They each require um, different ammunition systems, um, different training, different ways of using them. So it's very hard to do all this uh, at a great scale right now. So this is providing the Russians with a fair, fair amount of advantage in this war of attrition in the Donbass. And again, I'm speaking with George Beebe, who's a director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as director of Russia analysis at the CIA and as White House advisor on Russia matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. Well, apparently they've pretty much got a land corridor now into uh, Crimea and They've secured most of Luhansk, and uh, they're working on Donetsk. But that doesn't mean that Putin's going to stop, right? Well, it doesn't, no. Although at this point, uh, I think Russia's ability to go much beyond the Donbass and, and to you know, reignite its early effort to take Kiev and other large cities in central Ukraine is, is very doubtful. Um, I wouldn't put it past them, you know, in a few years to be able to gear up to do that. But those would be years in which Ukraine too could prepare its uh, defenses and the West would have a lot more time to help the Ukrainians in their self-defense. 
So I doubt that the Russians have a very good chance of going much beyond the Donbass at this point. What I think they could do, though, and I think this is Putin's strategy, uh, is to continue to grind things out in the Donbass, eventually to control that entire region. The, the Donbass declared uh, independence, uh, you know, and the Russians uh, back in February when Putin launched this invasion decided to recognize the independence of those uh, republics. But the Russians and, and the separatists there don't control all of the territory that falls into those, you know, D uh, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, republics on the map. Um, so I think the best they can hope for at this point is that they will control all of those territories. At that point, my guess is that Putin, um, you know, essentially says, you know, we're ready for a ceasefire uh, and starts to dig in in defensive positions and then hope that the West's resolve and Ukraine's resolve starts to crumble. You know, we will see whether that's the case. Well, his strategy would then be surely to just go on for, grind it on for a couple of years. Uh, we don't know how much the winter in Europe, Western Europe, is going to weaken NATO's resolve because I think the Germans are perfectly, and so are the French, expecting that Nord Stream 1 won't come back in terms of supplying gas so that they don't have alternative supplies that are sufficient. And the Germans are already telling the people you can't take a 10-minute shower, you have to take a 5-minute shower, etc., uh, in terms of hot water. So is that the strategy, just to drag this thing out? I mean, can the Ukrainians and the West resolve stand another year or two years of this grinding war? Well, I think you've asked exactly the right question there, and I don't know the answer, but I, I do think that that's what Putin is counting on right now, that in a war of attrition, which is in part a war of uh, war capacity on the one hand, combined with political resolve on the other, that the Russians can wait us out. And that, you know, over time, Ukraine will not be able to tolerate the level of, of uh, economic depression and sheer physical destruction that it's being subjected to. And that Europe and the United States will, you know, grow quickly weary of uh, fuel shortages and high gas prices and, and high food prices. And that will have a political effect uh, in the West that will increase the pressures to try to seek a settlement. Um, and that's a situation that I think Putin is aiming toward. And he thinks he has the upper hand on that. And would that extend to the notion that he could have more friendly leaders in Europe like Hungary's Orban and Le Pen in France? In other words, that the, the governments in power in France and in Germany will be essentially attacked from the, from the populist right? Well, he may be counting on that. I don't know. But I'm not sure it matters from his point of view whether he has new leaders that are more amenable to Russia or whether the existing leaders simply decide they need to pursue a more pragmatic course as he sees it. But in terms of the... What you mentioned earlier, George Beebe, in terms of Russia sort of digging in once it's captured Luhansk and Donetsk and it's, got, it's already got its corridor into Crimea, that you have a kind of World War I defensive trench warfare, which is pretty much what's happening now. My understanding is that the casualties the Ukrainians have been taking have largely been from artillery targeting them in trenches that they built and tried to disguise in the woods, and that the real uh, battle in many ways is over drones, where drones can detect where you are, and then the counter-battery radar, radar that can detect where the Russian artillery is, and that's where this HIMARS system has come in. So we're told that, it's, that the Russians are taking quite a beating in there behind the lines from these systems. I'm not sure how much of that we can believe, but is that where the new battle is in, in terms of technology, drones, counter-battery radar, and HIMARS, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, the difficulty with the HIMARS system for the Ukrainians is not that it's not a, a very effective system. It is. 
they're already using it, I think, to quite good effect in, in targeting Russia, targeting Russia's uh, ammunition depots, its supply chains, and, and uh, its uh, artillery uh, and missile batteries themselves. Um, the problem with HIMARS is, can they get sufficient numbers uh, and train up their forces sufficiently quickly to offset what has been, you know, an overwhelming and relentless Russian barrage of artillery on the other side. And the Russians, don't forget, they're going to adjust uh, to this new reality. They're going to figure out how to move and camouflage uh, their ammunition supplies, for example, so that they're out of range or much more difficult to find that they have been so far. So um, although HIMARS, uh, is having a good effect. It doesn't appear at this point to me that it's going to be a game changer altogether. So what's going on then with Putin's trip to Iran? We've already learned that apparently Iran is supplying some drones. I don't know whether they've used them or not, or they've arrived or not. But apparently Turkey, through Erdogan's son-in-law, his company of already sold Ukraine a number of Turkish drones that have been very effective. So, again, we get back to the drone warfare. I don't know why the Russians don't have sufficient drones of their own, but what do you think is going on in the meetings uh, that Putin is having in Iran with its president along with Erdogan? They're apparently talking about Syria, and Erdogan is threatening another invasion of uh, northern Syria to attack the U.S.-backed Kurds again. Erdogan is not exactly a <laughs> not exactly a, a, a close friend of the U.S. in the sense that uh, apparently he's using this war in Ukraine supposedly to become a, a peacemaker, but he's also making money and uh, laundering Russian money. And a lot of the oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, have their super yachts parked in uh, Turkish ports. So. How do you see the role of Turkey and Iran here? They're not, they're not traditional allies of Russia. No, they're not traditional allies of Russia, but I think there are two important aspects of this visit. Uh, one is the very practical aspect that you talked about there on what kinds of weaponry and supplies the Russians could get that might help them in this artillery battle, as you've described it, uh, in, in Ukraine. And it sounds as if the uh, Iranians, who actually have developed some quite good drone technology, are, are willing and able to help in that regard. Uh, but I think perhaps the, the more important aspect of this is political and symbolic. Uh, I don't think it's accidental that Putin has arranged this meeting uh, to coincide uh, with Biden's recent trip to the Middle East. Uh, it sends a signal that Russia is not isolated in the world, as we have uh, attempted uh, to show. Uh, we've tried to unite the world uh, behind the Western alliance in isolating Putin and Russia, showing that the world uh, finds what Russia has done in Ukraine completely unacceptable. Um, but the Russians have tried to show that, no, uh, they, in fact, remain uh, integrated in the world, that doors still open to them, important doors, and that uh, though the West would like to think that the world is growing more and more Western, um, the world is, in fact, becoming more multipolar, that Russia is deepening its cooperation with China, deepening its cooperation with key players in the global South. So that's an important part of, of this uh, trip from the Russian point of view. Well, but if you compare Biden's recent trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia to what Putin is doing now in Tehran, meeting with the Iranian leaders and the Turkish president, it's <laughs> I'm afraid that uh, Putin looks like he's winning. I mean, apparently MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is, is selling Russian oil at an incredible discount and making a lot of money. And again, he's in bed with Russia with OPEC too. The Israelis, our allies, are sitting on the fence vis-a-vis -vis supporting Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky himself has had to complain, and he's Jewish, saying, well, you know, what's wrong with the, the Jewish state not supporting us when we're being attacked in such a brutal way? And 
Putin, of course, has been targeting civilians in the, in the cruelest kind of way. So the U.S. is not looking that good, and I don't know for the life of me why Biden even made that trip, because it did nothing but seem to humiliate him. Well, I think you're right. The, uh, the optics are not very pretty from uh, the American perspective. So then going back to the idea that Putin's strategy could be to grind this thing out for a year or two years in the hope that Western resolve or NATO resolve will crack, is there a counter strategy here? Um, is there anything short of a total victory of the Ukrainians, which is looking less and less likely? Well, I think that's exactly the question that we need to be thinking very hard about. Um, I don't think that time is on our side with this. And what that tells me is that we ought to be aiming for using the leverage that we do have right now to steer this toward a settlement, um, to, to end the fighting in Ukraine sooner rather than uh, having to deal with a much less favorable situation a year from now. Um, now, is that possible? I don't know. Um, you know. We say that we have this in mind. We say that what we're trying to do in providing the Ukrainians with the weaponry that we are is not only to aid them in their legitimate self-defense, but also to put some cards in their hand for use at the negotiating table in order to, to come out uh, with a settlement that leaves Ukraine independent and secure. Um, but I think we need to be using that leverage right now. Uh, we need to be convincing Putin that the, the alternative to a settlement is worse for him, but also that there are some incentives that he can look forward to if he's willing to make genuine concessions for peace. One of those has got to be the prospect of easing economic sanctions on Russia if Russia is willing to end the fighting in Ukraine. Well, George Beebe, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who's the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as director of Russia analysis at the CIA and as a White House advisor on Russia, on Russia matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the new CNN poll finding 75% of Americans see inflation as their top concern, with only 25% approving of Biden's efforts to curb it. The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war. Boards that gun you're toting And even the Jordan River has bodies floating But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us is Robert Johnson, the Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He was formerly Chief Economist of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and of the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Johnson. Pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the latest CNN poll, which came out on Monday, uh, showed that 75% of Amer Americans see inflation as their top concern but only 25 of them approve of President Biden's efforts to deal with it. So that's a pretty bleak statistic, is it not? Well, I think it is uh, a symptom, and it is bleak. Uh, inflation is hard to make, which you might call the scapegoat, because this inflation itself is a product of various things. Uh, loss in time in the labor market, breakdown of firms, tearing up global supply chains, the Ukraine threat, and rising oil. So all of those things can be aggregated into rising prices and what you might call uh, haunting or daunting prospects for the future. So people's anxiety goes up 
and this becomes a symbol of it. But it is not like some of the inflations that we've been seeing in the past and around which central banks were founded, because this really came from disruption of supply, disruption of the supply of labor through the pandemic, disruption of the oil markets, disruption of food distribution systems. All of these things are what you might call contributors. And to think that a central bank just raising interest rates is going to knock it all down without having any other negative side effects is why the Biden administration faces a dilemma. So in terms of the way that the press is covering it, already the White House communications director, Kate Bedingfield is obviously annoyed. She says the facts are clear. The sustained 34-day decrease in the price of gas is important news for families across the country. Yet the media is doing its own version of rockets and feathers, covering the spike but not the drop. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think there's an element of truth in that. Let's talk like a mathematician for a minute. If next month... All prices go up 10%, just blam, one time. That could be either a 10% price rise, or it could be, if extrapolated for 12 months, a 120% rise in inflation. And so what looks like an adjustment that's transient only becomes a trend if everybody builds it into their cost escalation and wage agreements and all kinds of things. And the prospect that it is transitory rather than a new trend is very, very good. And the press is not dwelling on it from that perspective. They're acting as though a rate of change in the short run will be extrapolated into a new trend in the long run, and that's unacceptable. And they should be saying, we went through these bumps and everything calms down, like oil prices are a little bit right now, though they could hear their head again if the Ukraine situation becomes more acute. And so I, I do feel like what I call a simplistic bugaboo is being sealed upon by seized upon by the press. And it isn't necessarily a, a deep structural analysis of the things that are frightening people. And when you foment fear, you actually make things worse. If you if you diagnose what's happening and look for root causes, learn which are transitory and which we need to address, you're making a difference. And I I think the White House has some basis for objecting right now to how they're being treated in the media. They do need to look like they are not only concerned, but doing that diagnosis and taking action. And I'll give Janet Yellen some credit. She said it was a bigger and more ominous transformation of price levels than we anticipated. That's in part, not just because of the pandemic, but because of the Ukraine element that came on after that. But unfortunately, given that the buck stops at the Oval Office, I mean, excuses just don't seem to work with the public, do they, Rob? And at another level, the question (laughs) that isn't asked is, what would the other side have done? They have gone and crushed everybody and raised the unemployment rate to 15%. That wouldn't have stopped any problem. Oh, yeah, they're already calling for tax cuts. That's what uh, Senator Scott is calling for, more tax cuts. The other thing that seems to be uh, omitted from the conversation is a look at the spikes in prices from large corporate monopolies who are not impinged upon by antitrust enforcement. But I don't hear anybody complaining about inadequate antitrust enforcement other than people like Matt Stoller and others who are uh, at, at the vanguard. So what would you predict the economic situation would be like in the end of October, the beginning of November, just before the election? I would say the inflation rate would still be high enough to be daunting, but have decelerated from what we had seen over the last 12 to 14 months. So I think things will be leveling off, but it may be, if you will, too late for people to have regained confidence. Or, or I put it, it may be too early for the kind of data that would fortify confidence. I think a lot of other issues 
related to the Supreme Court decisions recently are very important. I think the idea of tax cuts are a question of for whom. I think some of the uh, really, really severe weather we're seeing around the world. Yesterday, I believe in England, they had the all-time record for the highest temperature and not seeing proactive work on climate change. And I won't entirely blame the White House because the stalemate in the United States Senate plays a role. But when it looks like Rome is burning and everybody's fiddling, government goes down and that hurts incumbents more than challengers promises change the government. So just to talk about the challengers versus the incumbents, it's pretty extraordinary that Trump was able to win over working class voters, given that he's a complete fraud. But he's been helped by Fox News, which for decades has basically, I think, created the very constituency that Trump was able to rally, uh, because their focus is always on, uh, you know, sort of trolling and owning the libs and basically appealing to angry white working class voters. That, that's the constituency that they built. And that's why they're such an important part of the Republican Party, because in the last election, Biden won by 7 million votes, but Trump wasn't far behind him. And the Republicans picked up 12 House seats. So a lot of people still vote Republican, even uh, with a, a leader that obviously is uh, nothing but a disaster. So what do the Democrats do about this poaching uh, of their base in this kind of right-wing populist uh, theft of the Democratic base? I think there needs to be examples of much more assertive behavior on the Democratic side. I think the uh, if you go back, I, I always point people towards a podcast that I tried to help put together with David Sirota called Meltdown. Alex Gidney's uh, company funded it. And the meltdown wasn't the meltdown of the great financial crisis. It was the meltdown of confidence in politics and in expertise, particularly in finance, of having a bailout that paid the polluters and didn't pay or alleviate the suffering of many who were left underwater. And Trump is a symptom of that dynamic, as was the rise in Republicans in the House, the takeover of the Senate, and, and his beating Hillary Clinton. Trump, as a symptom, was a great theater actor. He ran around the country saying, the system is rigged. You've got to get rid of these donors. But he seduced and abandoned people. And Joe Biden, as a, what you might call a uh, common man kind of curb appeal, was able to beat him. But now with no action on the Democratic side, coming back to your question, it looks like they're back in the stupor. The despair and the rage related to inflation, related to health, related to many dimensions, is still present. There was not profound change by the Democrats that can be inspire, considered inspiring. And so, which might, whether it's a return of Trump or the next demagogue, will be pouring flames on a pool that is still gasoline that hasn't been cleaned up and starting a fire. Well, the tactic, of course, of being in support of far-right politics and being the gift that keeps on giving to plutocrats is not new with uh, right-wing populism because that's exactly what Hitler did. I mean, the Nazi Party was the National Socialist Party. Its base was working-class Germans. I mean, I fear that this country is heading in, in the direction of fascism because the January the 6th coup attempt was a classic fascist coup attempt. And Trump is not going away. He's doubling down. The Supreme Court's helping him. Uh, the Republican Party's completely in his thrall. So what kind of electoral message can this beleaguered Biden administration galvanize Democrats around? Yes. And I, and I think the analogy right now is, is quite interesting in the sense that it, it, it can be very illuminating. What we see is a very, very frightened, despairing 
people. We've seen this on diseases of despair. Uh, Anne Case and her husband have done work on this. And we've had automation. We've had austere local budgets. We say we can't afford community colleges and upgrade. We've had machine learning replacing people. And you have a lot of people, and as you might call white blue collar people, who are legitimately afraid. And we don't tax the wealthy and the powerful enough to be able to provide those transformational services so those people feel reassured that they're on the system. So what happens, and I think this is a really dangerous dilemma, is when the Democratic Party can see the suffering and it sees people moving to that despairing right wing, we'll call it the Trumpian world, not only are they hogtied in the Senate processes, but I think they're concerned that they will be chasing the donors away to fuel the donors supporting the other side, even if the social ramifications, as we've discussed, are dreadful, horrendous, daunting. In other words, the donors want to keep their money the wealthy want to keep their money more than they want to have a healthy, coherent, socially sustainable system. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Rob Johnson, is there, there's certainly time, but do you think there's a possibility that the Democrats can come up with a leadership and narrative to run a, you know, a really powerful pro-worker campaign? I think some of the Supreme Court action has the potential to catalyze movements on many of the issues that they're encroaching upon. I think that the midterm election, the economy will not have stabilized or turned in a positive direction in time for it to be clear. I think it may be better than now, but the rate of change is is very slow. And that presumes we don't have a nuclear exchange with Putin. Uh, but I, I don't see in the time frame between now and November landmark changes unless the Biden administration takes a lot of what I will call powerful executive order thrust. And uh, I, I hear rumors, but I don't see it on the table. And just in closing, do you think that the January 6th hearings are going to move the needle? At one level, I think it does fortify the concern of moderates and Democrats who might have stayed home. Brings them to the table because they can see how ugly things can be. At another level, I think the January 6th hearings tend to arouse suspicion on the right that they're out to get us because we were trying to do, meaning the, the Trumpian right was trying to get over this stalemate and do some real reform. So it may actually fortify their conviction on the far right and also fortify the dread on the left. Right, but is there more, is there more of them on the far right than there is with the rest of the country? I suspect not but they seem to be much more engaged. Well, Rob Johnson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again when the uh, the sun's a little brighter and the weather's a little better. Right. <laughs> and there hasn't been a nuclear war. <laughs> and I thank you for joining us, uh, Robert Johnson. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Johnson, Executive Director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He was formerly Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and the United States Senate Budget Committee. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the likelihood that American plutocrats will support Trump in his rerun for the presidency, even though they might find him distasteful, just as German industrialists found Hitler distasteful, but useful in breaking labor unions and making them richer.
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, The GOP's Army of Christian Nationalists and White Supremacists Poses a Danger Greater Than You Know. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. And your article goes on to say nothing threatens American democracy more than the religious extremist factions teaming up with far-right fascist groups with guns. So in our previous segment uh, on today's program, we're speaking with Rob Johnson, former the head of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He was formerly chief economist of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. We talked about how Trump is all but announcing he's running again, and with the GOP under his control, that there's the likelihood that American plutocrats will support Trump, even though many might find him distasteful, just as German industrialists found Hitler distasteful, but useful in breaking labor unions and making them richer. Now, I think we already have examples of that, don't we, with the libertarians like Peter Thiel, the candidates that he's chosen and endorsed, uh, this guy Blake Masters in in um, Arizona was way down until Trump just just endorsed him. And as you write in your article, these libertarians, like Peter Thiel and the Koch family, or what's left of the Koch family, and Mercer's, etc., would be perfectly happy to go back to a utopian past in which 13-year-old boys worked in coal mines and their adolescent sisters toiled 12 hours a day in cotton mills. So... Is that an overwrought comparison between Trump's GOP and the Nazis, which, after all, the Nazi Party was called the National Socialist Party, and its base were the white working-class Germans? Well, five years ago, people might have thought it was overwrought. We went through an attempted violent overthrow of the government that nearly succeeded. Uh, And I think the January 6th committee is laying out very well the complicity of Trump and uh, people who worked for him right at the top. So, no, it is not overwrought. And the thing about libertarians is they may have no use for the abortion issue or the various social issues. They're not affected by it. If you're a billionaire, uh, you can fly your daughter to Europe or Canada to get an abortion. These are minor inconveniences compared to getting their tax cuts. It is exactly the same as uh, 1933 with the Nazis. The great German industrialists like uh, Alfred Krupp, or the uh, uh, at the time he was kind of the uh, media czar of, of Germany, Alfred Hugenberg, he was, uh, you know, four square for, uh, for Hitler, even though he considered him a vulgar, you know, socially inept uh, person from the gutter, uh, and that there would be all kinds of restrictions on freedoms. Uh, that didn't matter. And we see how that is with Peter Thiel. Uh, now, he, in particular, is a peculiar libertarian, and then he uh, laments the fact that women have the right to vote. Well, <laughs> how so he's probably not too concerned about uh, their right to control their own uh, reproductive destiny. Well, you write in your article... At Common Dreams, uh, Mark Lofkin, the GOP's army of Christian nationalists and white supremacists poses a danger greater than you know. Nothing threatens American democracy more than the religious extremist faction teaming up with the far-right fascist groups with guns. You saw this happening, in a sense, to your party since you're a recovering Republican. You say, I observed the infiltration of the Republican Party by the religious right when you were on your star positions on the House and Senate. 
and I became alarmed at the shadowy undertakings of GOP Congress and belonging to the family, a secretive group that believes in imposing theocracy in America. And you left the party as a result of what I saw as the religious rights subversion of the party of Lincoln. I actually interviewed the author of the the family the other day, Jeff Charlotte. Jeff Charlotte, yeah. Yeah, and he's been working with these far-right militias and Christian fundamentalists and, and Christian nationalist groups in uh, Wisconsin and California, etc. And his reports are absolutely alarming. I mean, they are looking for a civil war. They want a civil war. They don't want to live with secular America, and they particularly don't want to live with secular, multicultural, and multiracial America. Well, that's absolutely true. And when you think about it, uh, some rabble of uh, violent extremists has nothing to do with supposedly sober, church-going, pious Americans, and neither has anything to do with billionaire libertarians who are supposed to believe in liberty. But they uh, dislike each other's different views more far less than the fact that they agree with each other that liberal democracy is the main enemy. I think libertarianism uh, in its American form is basically a hoax. It's people who are Republicans who don't want to call themselves Republicans for tactical reasons. But they all support Republicans when it comes down to cutting a check for, uh, for a political action committee. And again, I'm speaking with Mike Lufkin, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, The GOP's Army of Christian Nationalists and White Supremacists Poses a Greater Danger Than You Know. Well, let's talk a little about what you brought up in your article. 30 years ago, the Italian author Umberto Eco wrote an essay on fascism in which he described fascism as is so mutable according to time and place, and that fascism power derives from being syncretic. It gathers together pretty much every retrograde belief, even when they are inconsistent with one another, and molds them into an action-oriented movement to every kind of authoritarian person in a society. So that's what Teal and company are doing with these characters that he's a uh, funding in Arizona and in Ohio for the US Senate. They're all oh, absolutely they're all, you know, behind Trump and behind Stop the Steal. And even the guy in uh, Ohio, J D Vance, it wasn't long ago that he was talking about Trump being an absolute catastrophe and a disaster and an embarrassment. But he's got his endorsement and he's towing the line and spouting all of the lies that Trump has become the orthodoxy of the Republican Party. So cynicism doesn't even believe to begin to describe these people. Well, absolutely. Uh, so are we surprised? Uh, having been in politics for so many years, no, I'm not. None of this surprises me. Um, as for... Uh, some people saying uh, Republicans with the uh, the Dobbs decision on abortion have adopted something that's widely unpopular in the country, uh, and that's true. What's their game plan? Uh, one uh, political commentator said that the Republican Party bought pro-life voters over the last uh, 40 years on credit, and now the loan is due for this very unpopular uh, policy in the country. And I'm thinking maybe not. Uh, the GOP base turns out rain or shine. They typically overperform in the polling. So the polling now of how many people support it or not uh, isn't 
strictly relevant. And anti-Roe activists in particular in the party will crawl over broken glass to reward the GOP for the Dobbs decision. Now, Democrats are notoriously stay-at-home in midterms of a Democratic presidency. You can go back to 1978, 94, 2010, 2014, and that holds true. Will they crawl over broken glass because of Dobbs? Uh, as well as the fact that current polling is irrelevant to all the gerrymandering, vote suppression, and straight-up rigging that Republican legislatures are doing in the states. And maybe they've considered that. So this is not something that's a, an automatic gift to the Democratic Party. It is if they mobilize on that basis. Uh, but that's by no means guaranteed. Uh, we saw over the weekend the Texas Democratic Party adjourned its convention without adopting a platform. Uh, the governor, Abbott, is throwing softballs for them to hit, and they couldn't get a quorum. Well, unfortunately, it does seem that the progressive Democrats are more disappointed with Biden, with his shortcomings, than they are alarmed at the prospect of American fascism, which is staring them in the face. That's that the... is exactly like uh, people to the left of the Social Democrats in Germany uh, preferred Hitler to the Social Democrats, at least de facto. And the communists, for instance, uh, considered the Social Democrats, who were kind of the analog of the Democratic Party now, to be the main enemy, and that Hitler was just this joke. Uh, I think they learned differently when they ended up in Dachau. And people today who don't directly have a dog in the fight over abortion uh, don't think this won't impinge on your own liberties eventually. Well, we did make the analogy uh, about Hitler and Trump, and it's no longer overwrought, and I'm glad, you, <laughs> I'm glad you're giving me permission, because I've been saying it for so long now, I think I'm sounding like a broken record. But you point out again in your article that the GOP and the right-wing Republicans are bent on, in particular the Supreme Court, are bent on wrecking the constitutional order past campaign, I'm quoting, past campaign finance and congressional redistricting decisions have been a gift to the GOP that has, been, that has given up on competitive electoral democracy in favor of Russian-style elections and public religion enforced by state diktat. So wouldn't that then mean in many ways that the, the better analogy between Trump's GOP is with Putin's uh, united Russia? I mean, he's made an well, alliance. Well, it's kind of an amalgam. On the political side, it's, it's Putin's Russia in terms of sort of bogus elections and a kind of faux populism. And uh, where the religious equity is, um, getting rid of constitutional democracy has been the goal of Christian Reconstructionists like Francis Schaeffer and John Rushdoony. Uh, since the 1960s and 70s. They believe that the Constitution was written by these Enlightenment-addled heathens, and they want it substituted with uh, Old Testament law. Well, but Putin has covered up his thuggery with his piety of, of unlimited support for the ultra-conservative Russian Orthodox Church. So well, that that's... plays into it exactly. Trump will do the same with uh, any religious figure in this country uh, who's a right-wing fundamentalist, uh, just as Putin does with Archbishop Kirill, uh, the Metropolitan of Moscow. Right, who's blessing the war in Ukraine. Precisely. 
Right. Well, it, it, <laughs> I must say that in terms of Trump's compact, it's obvious that he chose Mike Pence as his vice president because that was the way to get the Christian right on board uh, the ticket, and he paid them off with three Supreme Court justices. Uh, but then, but then Trump turned off, around. Uh, he paid off Pence, the guy who probably helped get him elected, uh, with being perfectly fine if he were uh, hung from a gallows. <laughs> that was what I was about to bring you, up. <laughs> uh, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog, as Harry Truman said. If you want a really extreme uh, uh, illustration of that, look at the uh, relationship between Trump and Pence. Indeed, and I find it so extraordinary that Pence was in the garage after he'd escaped the mob, in the garage at the Capitol, about to get in a in the limo, and he turned to his his Secret Service guys who were protecting him and said, I don't have a problem with you guys, but I'm not getting into that limo because I don't know where that driver will take me. And he was perfectly uh, right in being suspicious that the driver was working for Tony Arnado, who was Deputy White House uh, Chief of Staff, a former Secret Service guy, and he's a part of the Trump plan, and I'm sure they were going to, you know, basically disappear Mike Pence and then declare a national emergency, and uh, the rest would be history. Yeah, like something out of a Robert Ludlum novel. Uh, today, incidentally, the Secret Service announced uh, it cannot recover those emails from uh, the period around January 6th. So that tells me they were not accidentally deleted. Somebody wiped a hard drive. Well, of course, and it's, I'm sure it's Tony Anato. It's just all, again, you mentioned Robert Ludlum. You can't make this stuff up. You know, so just uh, just in the last minute here, Mike, do you think the Thursday's hearings, again, they're going to add to it. They've got Pottinger, the Deputy National Security Advisor. So maybe they, the portrait of this reckless, incompetent, out-of-his-depth, insane amateur in the Oval Office for four years, um, do you think it'll ever take the scales off the eyes of a lot of the American people? I don't know. I, You know, the one bright spot is how well presented and choreographed the January 6th committee's hearings are. They're actually must-see TV. And they're in primetime on Thursday. So I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Mike Lofgren. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Mike Lofgren, who, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article to Common Dreams, The GOP's Army of Christian Nationalists and White Supremacists Poses a Danger Greater Than You Know. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by